Hello and welcome to the Film Photography Podcast 2019 Thanksgiving Marathon. Today is November 30th, 2019, and we're presenting episode 238, a conversation between Owen McCafferty and Mr. Sam Sherman. Sam Sherman has always been a proponent of regular eight home movies. And in this conversation, Sam's going to talk about the format of regular eight, some recommended regular eight cameras, and generally why the format is so good. This year, the Film Photography Project brought back regular eight film, and it's currently available in our online store, filmphotographystore.com. So dig through your grandparents' attic, basement, or head over to a yard sale, thrift store, ebay.com, and pick up an awesome, inexpensive, regular 8mm camera and start shooting some home movies. We got you covered here at the Film Photography Project with film, developing, and scanning. Without further ado, I'm going to turn it over to Mr. Owen McCaffrey. Hey everybody, uh, this is Owen McCafferty for the Film Photography Podcast. Today I've got a very special guest on the line, Mr. Sam Sherman. For those of you who listen to the podcast regularly, I'm sure you've heard our interviews with Sam in the past, which are always really interesting. And if you haven't, you should go back and listen to them because they're super interesting. And if you don't know who Sam is, he's a producer, a photographer, a cinematographer, a film collector, archivist... And, you know, just kind of an all-over film guru. So we really like to turn to Sam when we want to get the inside scoop on uh, lots of different aspects of film, especially when it comes to, to movie film and cinematography. H- how are you, Sam? Hey, great. Just great. Appreciate you having me on today. Always a pleasure. We wanted to talk about regular 8mm or double 8mm or standard 8mm. Those are all sort of the different names for that format. We've talked about it on the show a lot. Um, we've blogged about it. Mike has done lots of videos on it. Um, we sell it on our uh, online store, and it's been a, a huge hit. It, it, it's a format that's near and dear to my heart. It's a format that I know a lot of our users really love. And seeing as you've been in the business for a long time, um, we really would like to get your background on Regular 8. You know, is this a format that you used, uh, that you started out on? Is this a format that you're familiar with? What do you think about it? And and maybe maybe we can start by you just sort of explaining to our listeners who don't know what Regular 8 is, uh, what it is and how it started, and then we'll go from there. Well, Regular 8 was a uh, an attempt to make a less expensive home movie version in the early 1930s during the Depression when 16mm was the main home movie format. 16mm uh, came along to give people the option to make their own home movies and it was quite expensive, so the using of 16-millimeter film was not for everybody. It was for a more wealthy segment of the audience. It was hardly for the average consumer. It just were not uh, something. It was not something they could afford. So it was Eastman Kodak, I think, mainly interested in figuring out a way to make a less expensive home movie format. Now, before that, there was a an attempt to make a less expensive format with a camera. I believe it was called Kenko. I think they had a projector and a camera that kind of took 16-millimeter film and had a series of small frames on a 16-millimeter original film. Now, these films we're talking about for home movie use were all reversal, which meant that they were processed at first to a negative in the chemicals, and then they were flashed with a light, and then it was processed again, and that made it turn out as a positive. So most home movie film, 8 and 16 millimeter, is what's known as reversal, processed to a positive, which means there was no need to have a negative, make a print, and there'd be a double cost there in order to project it. The camera original came out as a positive, whether it was black and white or color, and could be directly projected. Now, the Kenco system, as I said, would take a roll of 16-millimeter film, possibly a 100-foot roll, and there were also 50-foot rolls, 
And it had some weird, weird system whereby, I don't know how they did this, maybe with a prism or some movement in the uh, pull-down, where it seemed to shoot a frame, switch over to the one next to it, then go down and shoot another one. had this erratic pattern where uh, they might get um, double the use or more out of a 16-millimeter film. Well, I think this was not lost on people at Kodak and other people who decided to come up with a means of offering a less expensive home equivalent. And so they came up with what was known as double eight. And double eight meant you had a roll of camera original film, most likely 25 feet long, and it had double the amount of sprocket holes that 16 millimeter had. So the perforations were split, were, were closer together. And a frame would be right on top of the next frame, on top of the next frame. Mm -hmm. This would allow you to go down one side of a 16-millimeter film, and uh, it would allow you to photograph on half of the film. Then you had to go into what they called subdued light. Uh, subdued light meant avoid any light flashing onto the film to expose it. Mm -hmm. You had to be in a really darkened area and you would turn this film over in your camera, and now you'd photograph down the other half of the film. Now, when this film was sent away largely to Kodak, but there were others, Kodak would process it on the 16-millimeter processing equipment, which would take the 8-millimeter with the additional sprocket holes and process it, and then when the film came out dry, they'd run it through a knife object called a slitter, which would cut this thing in half, and then at the end of the first 25 feet, they would splice that onto the beginning of the second half, and they would sometimes put a white leader on at the beginning and then put it on a 50-foot projection reel and mail it back to the consumer. So you got out of a 25-foot roll on double eight, double the, the distance, because the the, the sprockets were, were closer together, and the frames were half the size. Now, of course, the quality was not equivalent to 16 millimeters. Sure. There's no doubt of that. The 16 had a bigger frame, and the cameras were probably better. But I remember the first Kodak 8mm cameras, they were quite precisely made, and they had an enormous wind sprocket in the middle, that uh, moved this thing through it, and again, you turned the film over into the second half. Now, around the same time, there was a company called Univex, or Universal Camera Company, and they made a black and white film, which I believe was made for them by Agfa in Europe, mm -hmm. or, or Gewert in Belgium, I'm not sure which. And they made a 30-foot-long roll that was black and white. They never sold color but it only photographed on the thin, uh, it wasn't double eight, it was single eight, the thin strip of single eight. Right. And that's all it could be was 30 feet. Well, other people apparently copied this. I, I think Univex was the one that pioneered it. They made a very small black, uh, black and chrome camera, which was selling for like $5 in the Depression, very cheap. Right. And it enabled people to do the cheapest home movies of all. And um, the um, Univex idea, which may have started with them, may not have started with them, spread to Revere, who then made a single-eight camera. It's very rare to collect. Mm -hmm. I've never actually seen one. And Bell and Howell, who also made a single-eight camera. And I'm not sure if it took the Univex roll of film or it took a special film. But for collectors, that's a very interesting to look for thing to look for the early single eight cameras and single eight was revived in Japan. Uh, I think in the sixties, yeah, fifties. That's yeah, and that's they right. Experimented with that idea again, but the uh, idea of double eight and the turning the film over, while it seems very clumsy, 
and uh, not for the average person. It did turn out to work for the average person. However, Kodak, realizing this was a problem, they then made Magazine 8, which had the 25-foot roll in it and a light, tight canister called a magazine. And uh, they had made a 16-millimeter magazine camera that took... um, a short amount of 16-millimeter film. I don't know if it was 100 feet or 50 feet. 50 feet, but yeah. Not, but not much. Uh, and those could be loaded quickly. And uh, the Magazine 16s had their greatest use in World War II in cameras made by Bell and Howell that were used in the military in combat photography mm-hmm. where there was 35-millimeter news footage being shot this footage could be in color and they could carry those canisters or magazines and put them in very quickly. Boom, show of this, that, and the other thing. And funny thing is that because it was a bigger 16 millimeter frame and Kodachrome color film was very, very sharp. Right. Some of these color World War II films shot in the 16 millimeter magazine cameras were made into feature films. Yeah, they're gorgeous. So, yeah two or three about the battle in the Pacific in color, and they were blown up to 35 millimeter, made from these magazines, which were also used, by the way, in Air Force gun cameras, Mm -hmm. where they would throw in that magazine when the plane was taking off, and that's what they'd have, 50 feet of film to shoot the opposing planes shooting at them and i know it was also popular with um with car companies to test impacts that's right that's right and they also made cameras cameras on helmets that had these things that's just crazy but the point i'm getting to is magazine 16 had a commercial use where magazine 8 did not and the problem with magazine 8 was the lack of good pressure on the film in the gate in the magazine. So Magazine 8 was a more expensive home movie uh, process than uh, Roll Double Eight. It was Double Eight, but you had to halfway through it, pull the magazine out, turn it over, put it back in. But that could be done in the light. It could be done very quickly. But the Magazine Regular 8 film never was as sharp as regular rolled double eight and for the reason of that still the home projectionist didn't run it on a big screen the average screen used in the home was 30 by 40 Mm -hmm. it could be even smaller but the average screen to use a home projector and get enough illumination on it for a little crowd of people in the living room was 30 by 40 and so most of these things worked reasonably well and the regular eight or double eight, uh, because it had better gate pressure in the cameras, it generally was sharper than the magazine eight. And uh, a lot of the regular eight films that have been preserved today that were in Kodachrome, which is sharp, they have been scanned and put on digital video and used in documentaries, even by HBO and places like that. So. It proved to me that the regular eight process was a good process and uh, could have some value. Now, I was a fan of this as a young man, as a kid, let's say, <laughs> because I loved movies. I went to the movies. I loved movies. Everything about movies, my whole life was movies. It still is movies, movies, movies. <laughs> I got into it when my uncle uh, gave my father his Univex outfit. He knew it was not good for various reasons. Uh, The $5 Univex camera had a viewfinder that was out of alignment because it bent. It was kind of a frame, almost like a wire finder. And if you pressed on it, you knocked it out of alignment. It it had things. It only had one speed. It didn't have any slow motion or faster speeds or slower speeds, nothing. And the, the lens that was on it was generally not very good. It was a 5.6 lens. That's as wide as it got. Wow. And the film was not very sensitive, so you had a lot of problems with it. And you had to use Univex film, which meant you had to find that hard-to-find film and then mail it to Universal to process. So my uncle got out of that. He gave that 
uh, camera and that small projector to my father, who had a technical background but had never shot movie film, and he played around with it, and he didn't like it. My father was quick to note the limitations of the Univex system, and so he gave it to me. He said, here, you can play around with this. <laughs> and he went ahead and bought a Kodak 8mm uh, camera that took double eight Kodachrome double, uh Whole film on double eight, and uh, that was called Kodak Reliant. Okay, it was a pretty good camera, yeah. and he then got the Kodak projector. Uh, I don't remember what the it was K seventy one or something seventy one, which was a good good quality projector. And he started shooting color home movies. And my father was a good photographer, did a great job, and documented our family trips and family this and family now, that. Do you remember? You know. Was was film in those days? I mean, I, are we talking about the 1950s? Well, I can tell you the years on this. The Univex system uh, was sold from about 1933 to the uh, late 30s, early 40s. By the early 40s, Univex or Universal realized that their system had limitations. And so they went ahead and they designed a new camera. They had made several models of the inexpensive Univex camera, but then they came up with a new camera called the Cinemaster, C-I-N-E-M-A-S-T-E-R. And that had several models, but they were basically all the same. They just gave it a different number or model G or model this or model that. And the Cinemaster camera was reasonably good camera compared to the Univex original camera. And it had another advantage. It could take Kodak double eight color film, and it could also be adapted to take the Univex single eight film. It was the only camera that could take both. Wow. So Universal didn't lose any sales for people who wanted the cheaper 30 foot film in black and white. They could buy that, or they could buy the more expensive. Kodak color film. So the Cinemaster camera was made from about, I would say, 1940 or 41 till maybe after the war and maybe until about 53, 54. And that had a pretty good sale. And I have several models of that myself in my own collection. I think they're they're interesting. Now, do you remember <laughs> when, you're, you know, when your dad was shooting, was film, I mean, was it a special occasion when your dad got out the regular 8mm camera to shoot? I mean, was film, in comparison with today, I mean, was film expensive? No, it was not expensive. And uh, any time that my father could uh, take it out, he would use He shot a lot of film and sent it out to Kodak to process. And they shot a lot of good color film of all kinds of things. Uh, indoors, we had lights, floodlights for parties. Uh, outdoors, you didn't need any lights. You could go, uh, you know, on a trip. We went on a trip to the Statue of Liberty. That's all filmed. We went up to the mountains to different places. That's all filmed. We're swimming in a pool. That's all filmed. <laughs> it was all the same thing that uh, families generally did. Sure. And uh, I went out, uh, as I got a little more involved with all this, I bought a telephoto lens there was no turret on the Kodak Reliant camera, but it did have what was known as a D-mount. The standard 16-millimeter mount was called a C-mount, and uh, there was even another version of it that Kodak had in the 30s for their Model E camera, and possibly others. They had a bayonet mount, too, but they also had, uh, I think it was an A-mount that the Kodascope or Kodak Model E took. It was the same thread as a C-mount, but there's some minor difference. But the C-mount was the standard 16-millimeter uh, mount most companies used. And uh, in the case of the 8-millimeter, uh, the standard mount, with there are other variations, was known as the, um, the D-mount. Universal or Univex, while they could take interchangeable lenses, they had a reverse mount. Most companies had C-mount or D-mount where you screwed the lens into the camera, not Univex. You unscrewed the lens, and there was a threaded pipe coming out of the camera. Wow. So you had to kind of lock onto that. And they had some lenses made for that. They're rare, 
but I think I have one or two accessory lenses. And Univex had several companies making these lenses. One was Ilex. They were kind of an optical company, not high quality, but okay. And then they had some better ones made by Wallensack. So they made a series of lenses for the Univex 30-foot single 8 camera. And the same weird mount went on the Cinemaster. Would have been smarter to go to a D mount, but they didn't. So those cameras, the uh, Univex or Universal Cinemaster, were made into the 50s. And uh, you had your choices. Again, in the early 30s, companies began to come up beyond Univex, which was a small, unimportant company, uh, like Bell and Howell, and they started making uh, movie cameras, 8mm eight, eight and 16, but they had gone back into some of the first 16mm cameras in the 1920s. The other one that came up very big was Revere. I don't know where they came from, but they, they sprung up, and they made a single 8 camera, short-lived, but their their major camera, there are trillions of them around today, <laughs> It's called the Revere 88. Right. Mike, a, I would say Mike Ross, one of his favorite cameras. Yeah, it's a nice camera. It's a small uh, brown camera made into the, uh, I would say, late 50s. What's interesting about the Revere 88 is that it kind of evolved. They had different kind of gleaming chrome wines on them and different knobs and things on them. But the same exact camera was made uh, for many years. And in that camera, to thread it, you had to go through one sprocket. Uh, and that made it a little more difficult. Mm -hmm. Other companies, they, like Bell & Howell, had no sprocket inside. They called it drop-in loading. You kind of threaded your film from the full spool onto an empty spool. Then you just dropped it into the two uh, spindles in there and dropped it into the gate where it didn't involve taking the film and going through a path and threading it around a sprocket. So they had an advantage over it. And the small Bell & Howell regular or double-eight camera, which was known as the Sportster mm -hmm. or the Companion, and they had different lens mounts. I don't know why, but they had different lens mounts. It was made in England and in the United States, and that was, uh, I think, called a 134 with different letter, you know, maybe it was 134A, right. 134 this, but that little Bell & Howell camera made in the 1930s into the 50s, I would say, I'd say it's the best double-eight camera. What's my opinion? It was a smoother wind. Mm -hmm. It's more solid. I've never seen one that doesn't work. I think they're made one... out of cast, they're like cast steel or iron or... So is the Revere, but not as well made. The Revere is not as well made as the uh, Bell & Howell. Mm -hmm. But the thing that's the advantage of the Bell & Howell, it has a better spring motor Sure. that you wind, and it goes to a point where the motor is beginning to wind down. It just stops dead. Sure. And it doesn't happen with the Revere. The Revere... As you wind and the motor starts running down, it starts slowing down. So it goes, bro. Which affects your projecting, it. right? Well, it affects your exposure because the slower it goes, uh, the more light is hitting it. So it's going to be lighter. So if you're shooting with the Revere and allowing it to slow down, that scene in your film is going to get lighter and lighter. As this thing gets slower and slower, it's sure. just crazy. Right. But most companies try to have a motor that stopped precisely, and then you'd wind the whole thing, and you'd be fine with it. So I say the Bell & Howell, Sportster, and Companion are the best small, non-complex, 8mm uh, standard 8 or double eight cameras. Now, they did something else that's interesting is they made a turret version that could take three lenses, mm -hmm. normal lens, wide angle, and telephoto. And they also had accessory small lenses so that the viewfinder image would be matched to the taking lens. So you have a kind of a tubular small uh, telephoto lens uh, for the finder, one for wide angle, one for the normal. And as you turn the turret, 
it puts each one in place. And this was kind of a uh, an eight millimeter double eight version of the very famous Bell and Howell seventy cameras, and those were used uh, in all kinds of use. They were used in World War II in combat. And those were sixteen millimeter, the seventy sixteen millimeter. Yeah. They were used for TV news, and they also had the same kind of a turret with accessory viewfinder lenses to match the field of the taking lens. So I thought Bell and Howell did quite a good job. But by the end of the 30s, and then after the war, 1945, there was a whole mess of companies making 8mm cameras and projectors. Ampro, that made 16mm projectors, now made an 8mm camera, but magazine only. And then there were other ones, a very weird one called Franklin. Sounds like it was named for Benjamin Franklin. Then the rarest one I could think of, it's called Briskin, and there was a, there were a couple of people in the Briskin family in Hollywood that worked for Columbia Pictures, Irving Briskin and Murray Briskin. But this was a Briskin in Chicago who worked for Revere. I think his name was Ted Briskin, and he had married um, one of the actresses in Hollywood. I'm trying to think of who it was. And somehow he got to make a camera, magazine load only, called the Briskin 8. I have one of those. It's just really weird. Right. And there were a lot of strange cameras being made, sometimes magazine only. Another one was Perfex. Hardly, hardly perfect, but another magazine only camera. And those companies that made those cameras... They did not make an accompanying projector. Sure. So you had to go over to the enemy or the competition <laughs> to buy the, the projector. But one of the good companies that existed, and they're not given much credit, but I'd like to, on this recording, give them some credit, was Keystone. Sure. Keystone. They were a great company, and they were in, I think, either uh, Massachusetts or Connecticut. at a big factory there, and I saw online... But that factory has become condominiums today. Wow. Senior citizen condominiums. So if you like old movies and movie <laughs> cameras, you can live in a condominium where the Keystone cameras were made. It's just hard to believe. They were minimized also, and I'll tell you why. They bought a projector that someone else had made. It may have been a company like Stuart Warner that was a technological company. Mm-hmm. They made a 16-millimeter camera and a projector and Another one called Paragon, or it might have been Stuart Warner. And that projector was sold to Keystone, who made it since the late 20s or early 30s, way, way into the 60s, a 16-millimeter projector. And I never thought much of it. I'm saying, this is nothing. I just, I, someone gave me one. I threw it away. I didn't think anything of it. It was a real mistake because I didn't appreciate it. And the same with other things that Keystone made. But Keystone, while they went for the very low-end market, they went for it in a strange way. They made a camera that might have been Stuart Warner or Paragon. It was a tubular kind of thing that had the film inside, one on top of the other. One was a 16-millimeter, one was an 8-millimeter. When I was a kid, my friends and I were interested in this kind of thing. We used to call those cucumber cameras. <laughs> looked like you were holding a cucumber in front of your face to take a picture with that. And yet those were not bad cameras. It, as I say, it started with a 16-millimeter camera that may have been Paragon or Stuart Warner or something else, but it was a very famous 16-millimeter cucumber camera. And then they made one, I think it was called K8 of Keystone, that was a tubular kind of a camera. And they eventually made a turret model. But because of the weird shape, they could only have two lens turrets. So most people would go for normal and telephoto. And uh, then they got into making magazine load cameras in both 8 and 16. So Keystone was around a long time, probably made more uh, 8mm cameras and projectors than just about anything else. And the reason I didn't didn't appreciate them in the 30s and the early 40s, maybe into the 50s, they made these tin 16-millimeter projectors. Now, they may have gone back to the teens making a 35-millimeter toy projector out of tin, looks like a tin can right. piece of junk, 
So I never appreciated junky equipment. It just looked like junk. And uh, it may have been Keystone that started way back then. I don't know their whole history. But the thing that's amazing is how good a lot of the Keystone cameras and projectors are. They're far better than anybody would think. Wow. And then another company that came along, they were in Long Island City in Queens in New York, was called DeJour. That was in the sure. 40s, D-E-J-U-R. They had a big building on Northern Boulevard with a big logo up on the top of it. It's just amazing how these companies came and went. They're just such a piece of our imagination now, like they never existed. Right. But uh, but very interesting. Well, but, I think uh, it's it, – I mean, I think a part of that, I'm sure, or I assume, is because after, after World War II, when GIs came home and – People had money to spend, um, you know, the, the cost of products came down. And I think that's really when home movie making started to become more available to the masses as, pl- as places like Kodak started coming out with cheaper cameras that, you know, maybe weren't as technical or were easier to use and were more cost effective and film prices came down. Because I think, you know, post-war boom, that's when you really start to see everybody's taking home movies as opposed to You're, you know, you're right on. You're right on, because all of this is with the baby boom. Mm -hmm. As people got married and they began to have children, the idea was document all this. And that was it. The baby boom. uh, What are those babies called after the war? They have a name. Baby boomers. Baby boomers. Yes, that's right. So they, they are the ones who are the subjects of all this equipment and production and everything. And they're the influence of the whole thing. And I think uh, most of these companies did a pretty good job. I think it was a highly competitive industry in cameras and projectors. And I think that um, Bell and Howell had a big portion of that market. Then came Revere. Then came Keystone. And Kodak had an advantage because they were heavily into the retail stores. They could push a lot of the stuff that they made. And that's how come my father, who was a pharmacist who was a Kodak dealer and dealt with them, was able to get his equipment at a wholesale price, and he bought the Reliant camera and the uh, 71 projector. And the fact of the matter is, it took good movies and projected well, so he was right in getting that. It certainly was a big improvement over Universal, but Universal Univex did not go to waste. Here's a little eight-year-old kid, me, and he gives this to me. Well, what am I going to do? I'm going to, A, try to fix it. What does an eight-year-old kid know? Well, I knew something. My father was good at repairing things, and so I was repairing the camera and the projector, and I used to carry my little Univex camera around and film all kinds of strange things. And eventually I had some brand loyalty to Universal. I don't know why. Not everything they made was any good, but... Somehow I did, and they existed into the late 50s in bankruptcy, and they existed in Manhattan at their main office, which was at the Flatiron Building. It's a weird angled building. Iconic, yeah. 23rd Street and 5th Avenue. And so you could go there and buy Universal Film, bring film for processing, or you could buy repair parts for these cameras you couldn't believe it they had every weird thing in the world so if i had something broken i would go up there and buy a part or buy a broken camera and fix it so i eventually bought a uh universal cinemaster camera broken somewhere for five dollars and i went up there and bought a couple of parts and i was now in business (laughs) shooting double eight and uh i went to high school in uh Manhattan at Stuyvesant, which was a tech high school. Mm-hmm. And everywhere I went, I carried my Universal City Master. I was filming everything. Right. People walking down the street, premieres of movies, this, that, and the other thing. And I ended up uh, going on the last ride of the Third Avenue L, filmed wow. that whole thing. And it was all filmed on black and white, black and white film, but it wasn't. The 30-foot one, which I didn't like, but it was double eight black and white from a company, I think they're on 45th Street in Manhattan, called Kinolux, K-I-N-O-L-U-X. Never heard of it. 
Well, they were a company that I don't think they actually made film, but I think they respooled it and they sold it for, for 16 millimeter. And they were sold in all camera stores and uh, also double eight and they would process it. And I would come down and deliver it to them. They process it and give it right back to me. Or I could mail it in, they'd mail it back. They were a very good company, and they must have been big at one time because they did make movie editor rewinds for the rewind table, and I did see them somewhere with the name Kinolux molded into the aluminum casting. It was very fancy. So they were around for quite a while, and I used to like Kinolux, and I used a lot of their film and other low-cost films. And I like black and white because... I always felt I was making my own newsreel. The newsreels were in black and white. Sure. And when was, did you when did you stop shooting regular eight? Do you remember? Well, I did and I didn't. I did and I didn't. I I I was shooting regular eight from the late forties, or actually, yeah, it was regular eight first, the uh, single eight, and then on my father's camera, the double eight, and uh, I stayed with that for a long time until I went to City College Film Institute. And uh, you had to make films there. And I felt, uh, well, I, you know, I didn't like working under a controlled school uh, situation. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. you're, you're in a school, you're, you're very regimented. To me, I like to be wild and free, out <laughs> and doing what I like to be doing. So I ended up by 19, 1958, buying a 16-millimeter projector. I had a very interesting 8-millimeter projector called the Movie Sound 8. It was the first 8-millimeter sound projector. It was not for live sound, but you had a stripe of magnetic material put on the edge of the regular 8 film, mm -hmm. and this projector could record on it. So you strictly had to post-sync sure. some kind of sound onto your film. So I had that for a number of years, experimenting with that. But I realized when I got to City College, where everything was 16 millimeter, that I needed to have a 16 projector, and I wanted to collect old 16 millimeter movies. So I traded my movie Sound 8 for an Ampro projector. I had that, but then I had no camera. So I was walking down uh, the Avenue of the Americas, or 6th Avenue Sixth in Manhattan, mm -hmm. and I passed the camera store, and then in the window... There was an old camera. It looked very good. It was the Kodak Model E from the 30s. Mm -hmm. it looks like an expensive camera, but not. And it was there for uh, $15. Wow. came with a 3.5 uncoded lens. But I went and I grabbed it, so I had it. It was pretty interesting looking, and it worked well. It had three speeds. It had 16 frames per second, 24 and 48. But not 24, 32 and 48. But I felt... I needed sound speed, 24 frames per second. And so I opened up this camera, and I changed the whole mechanism inside. It's got a lot of nerve. I figured 15 bucks, if I wreck it, I can throw it sure. out. Who cares? Sure. I fixed it. I got it to work precisely at 24 frames per second only. Lost the other speeds. Mm. And then it only took double perforated film. Sure. But sometimes in looking for bargains, I'd find 16 millimeter single perforated film that wouldn't work on that camera. So I opened it up and I filed off one set of perforations or sprocket, sprocket uh, teeth. And then I cleaned it up and polished it with something from an optician called Jeweler's Rouge. It was like a stone, but yet it would polish metal. Wow. So I converted that camera to running at... Uh, 24 frames per second with single or double per film. I took some great films with that. Really excellent. It was really good. So I really didn't want to go back to using 8mm of any kind at that point. I felt everything I was doing was an advance coming up the ladder, hoping to go to 35mm in Hollywood. So I was just moving along. I didn't want to go back to eight. But when I got married, and then I was uh, just early married, I was out with my wife. I said, yeah, well, I'm going to take some home movies of this. So I went back to my uh, double eight millimeter roots, and I bought a Bell & Howell companion camera. Got it inexpensively somewhere. I used to take that everywhere. And it just took great, great movies, just really beautiful. And, and I use that quite a bit. You know, some of our listeners who 
may you know many of them may not have used regular eight before maybe they've used super eight for a long time or 16 millimeter i would say probably most of our listeners are are super eight shooters if i had to guess and so when we started offering regular eight in the store a lot of people were very confused they weren't quite sure what it was um you know now that we have resources on the website that kind of show people how to load the cameras and how the system works people are getting interested in it but for somebody who's a super eight shooter who might be curious about regular eight are there any advantages in your opinion to the format over super eight i mean is there anything that you would say while you know i'd, I'd rather prefer to shoot regular eight over super eight or super eight over regular eight do, do you have well, any uh, you know, thoughts again, there I'm very opinionated, so <laughs> we have to expect You're a New that whatever I'm, gonna, whatever I'm going to say is very opinionated. It's the way I think, and it's from my experience. First of all, I never shot a frame of Super 8. I have a Super 8 camera. Oh, wow, I didn't know that. It. Okay. Never shot it. Uh, I wasn't interested in magazine load because I knew the fallacy of it, that in the gate of the magazine, the film could not be pressed flat into the aperture of the camera. So whatever the magazine would be, regular 8 or Super 8, would not be as sharp as a loaded film that you threaded into the gate and pressure plate in the camera held sharp. So it could never be as sharp. Gotcha. That's number one. Number two, I didn't care about the sound cameras uh, because they worked at a weird speed. These are the Super 8 sound second. cameras from the late Super 70s? Eight sound. Yeah, yeah they, they work at a weird speed, 18 frames per second. It's not quite silent speed of 16 frames per second, not quite 24 frames. So it's a weird kind of a thing. If later you want to transfer it into video, it presents a lot of problems. Sure. So I didn't, I didn't care about that. I, I would say that um, I felt that double eight was a gem. Gotcha. The format was a gem. Yes, you had to be handy. You had to know how to thread these cameras. But you had such wonderful cameras as the H8 reflex of Bolex. You could buy a, right. a through-the-lens viewing camera that would take 100-foot spools, if they still made that, of double eight film with through-the-lens viewing with all kinds of features. That's just about the best double eight camera ever made it's an incredible camera sure now there was a great single lens reflex camera made in france but only taking the small spools called camex c-a-m-e-x okay that's a great camera for through the lens viewing so there were a lot of weird cameras made around the world i would say if you look and you start investigating you'll find in double eight there are some incredible great quality cameras made all over the world. Now, I started collecting in just a recent few years, the last few years, some Japanese double eight cameras. They just were so beautiful, yeah. beautifully made. Two, two of my favorite regular eight cameras that I use were both made by Canon in the mid-60s. They have automatic metering. There's one, the, the Canonette, which is super slim, um, super easy to carry around, and then they have a, a, a Canon 8, Cine 8, which is got power zoom on it, which was kind of rare for a lot of regular 8 because they started making, they were still making regular 8 cameras sort of on the cusp of Super 8 coming out and regular 8 going away, so it had some more modern features. But yeah, I think that there's so many cameras to choose from in regular 8, and they're inexpensive. I mean, if you go on eBay right now and look up regular eight millimeter camera, you can find a great camera that's that's uh, hand wound that will probably outlive you. Yeah, I would tell you that uh, what you got from Japan are some of the best double eight cameras, and they're not inexpensive. They're not lost on collectors. Mm -hmm. The Arco A R C O turret model for double eight. Those are one hundred and fifty two hundred dollars. Oof. They should be $5, the ARCO, <laughs> A-R-C-O, and several other brands. The best buy, though, in double-eight cameras, in my opinion, is or are cameras made by Yashica at the sure. beginning of double-eight in Japan. And those cameras, they look like they're plastic junk. But no, they're metal castings with really fine finish put on them, mm -hmm. and they're very good. They have them on a single-lens version. Uh, double lens turret, three lens turret. Those are very, very good cameras. And so on, Sankyo. 
from Japan. Oh, sure. Makes some very fine ones. But again, a lot of these turret models, they're very exotic and exotic looking. They look like newsreel cameras, but small, <laughs> very expensive. Uh, one of the fine turret cameras was made in France, Emel, E-M-E-L. Can't get that cheap. Right. I had one once, I got rid of it. Today, three, four, five hundred dollars. Wow. If you could find one. There are a lot of exotic cameras for double eight made in Czechoslovakia by Miopta. Sure. Who made the Flexoret reflex cameras. Those are very exotic. And in Russia, they made some very exotic Yeah, the quartz double eight double eight cameras, cameras are I've amazing. I've never had them or used them, but one camera I did have in the middle of this Univex and uh, Cinemaster and all that stuff, was a camera called Nizo, made in Germany, N-I-Z-O, mm-hmm. model 8E. And uh, it was a, a good, really precise German camera. It had sprockets to thread, but so what? didn't sure. bother me. But the thing that made it interesting for me was I was always trying to do titles or weird close-ups And there were no single-lens reflex cameras that viewed through the taking lens. So I had this Nizo or Nizo camera where you could open the gate and you could put some kind of a ground glass with a mirror in there Mm. and you could line that camera up razor sharp and then thread your film through. It's not as good as, you know, while you're filming, but it's something. And that was a very interesting camera. So there's a lot of things I could do to adapt things. And I was also, as a kid, experimenting with 3D. That was a big thing. And uh, with friends of mine, we bought a 16-millimeter 3D system made by LGET. They made accessory lenses, E-L-G-E-E-T. And they had a uh, thing that was a prism that split on 16-millimeter, which I could use on my camera. And it could give you two images and then a projection lens and then polarizing glasses that you could look at. So we were throwing balls at the camera <laughs> when 3D was there, throwing stuff and running into the camera ourselves and all that crazy thing. We also, a friend of mine, had a 35-millimeter 3D still camera, and we used to uh, to use that. And then he had an idea that he wanted not to look at the 3D slides. I'm going to just get off the subject for a minute. This is funny. <laughs> we not to use the 3D slides in a viewer, but to project them on the wall. Okay. So he bought a 3D projector for 35 millimeter slides, but you needed a silver screen. Oh. You needed a silver screen to reflect. so the polarizing glasses mm-hmm. would work. But he couldn't get it, so he went to a home or actually a store that sold window decoration materials for stores and bought big rolls of aluminum paper <laughs> and he put this on the wall in his bedroom that wall was maybe you know eight feet high by sure. maybe 12 feet wide it was a whole wall covered with aluminum paper i don't know his parents let him get away with it <laughs> but he pasted it all that the whole wall was aluminum paper then these slides that he had taken would be projected there, and we would come over and look at them with the uh, with the viewers, and it was pretty spectacular. I bought a, uh, a Yashica regular eight camera that had a uh, took batteries, battery powered uh, run, no winding, sure. had a zoom lens through the lens viewing. That was knockout, and I used to shoot. So I started way back when, got to making movies in Hollywood, went back to regular double-eight Kodachrome, shooting family movies everywhere I went, rolls and rolls and rolls of stuff. Wow. A lot of it. So I went back to it, loved it, great format. I think your your uh, listeners and viewers and fans are going to enjoy it. Go to regular eight. It's sharper than super eight. One last thing about regular eight. When home movies of Hollywood studios began to be rented of silent movie features in the 1930s, they began printing from the camera 35 nitrate negative in a direct reduction to 16-millimeter prints. 
If you could find those, I have a few of them now, mm-hmm. and transfer them to video. Regular eight. They are razor sharp. You'd think it was transferred from the thirty-five camera negative. Wow. Who would believe that? <laughs> well, I yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree more. And uh, as as always, it's it, it's always an immense pleasure. Uh, you shared some amazing uh, tidbits for us. I'm sure everybody found it very interesting. I know I did. Um, for for anybody, well, I guess first of all, I want to thank you, Sam, for your time and and your expertise and your stories. Always entertaining. Appreciate it. Appreciate being invited. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm sure we'll be talking again soon. For those uh, of you who are interested in the regular rate format and maybe want to get your hands on some film, we do have it at the Film Photography uh, Project store. Mike does have some videos up on YouTube that uh, discusses how to load some of these cameras or if you want to see exactly uh, some of the things that we've been talking about, how the film's flipped and how it's, how it's shot, um, you can find the Film Photography Project's YouTube channel. It's Film Photography Tube. And if you have any comments, um, I'd love to hear your experience with uh, Regular 8 Film, or if there's anything that you want to share with Sam, you can send us a note uh, to podcast at filmphotographyproject.com. You can also send an email directly to me if there's anything that you felt uh, you, uh, wasn't covered or you're curious about. You can reach out to me at owen, O-W-E-N, at filmphotographyproject.com. And again, thank you, Sam, so much for your, for your time. I'm sure we're going to talk to you really soon. Um, I know one of the things that we've been talking about that we're sort of interested in is the chemicals used uh, to process uh, movie film. So that is TBD. We're going to do an interview about that. So so um, keep a lookout for that. But thank you again, Sam. I, I really appreciate it. And I hope we get to talk to you again soon. Had fun bringing it all back again, and (laughs) hope all your listeners are using their equipment. Buy your supplies from Film Photography Project. Get out and do it. Awesome. All right, thanks, everybody, for listening. Thanks again, Sam, and have a great night. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.